Well, welcome everybody to today's second lesson of Outsmarting Anti-Semitism. We're going to be talking about no apologies. Talking about anti-Semitism, it's always good to start off with a good anti-Semitic joke, right? So two anti-Semites were standing around in their soon-to-be-opened store on the Lower East Side, and they're waiting for all the stuff to be filled on the shelves. And as they're standing around talking to each other, they see this little old Jew peeking through the window. So they say, watch, this guy is going to come in, he's going to ask us what we're selling. And lo and behold, the little old Jew walks inside the store, he looks around, the shelves are mostly empty, and he turns to the fellows there and he says, no, so what are you guys selling? Right away the guy elbows the other guy, you see, I told you. So the guy, one of the two anti-Semites turned to the little old Jew who was recognizable, the Jew, and he looks at him and he says, we're selling idiots. So the little old Jew looks at them and says, huh, it seems like you only got two left. <laughs> so, today's class we'll be starting and we're talking about anti-Semitism. Three things that we know or that we've seen about anti-Semitism. Number one, it's as ancient as they come. In today's Torah reading, we read about Jacob and Esau meeting each other. And Jacob and Esau embrace and hug each other. There's one opinion that says why there are dots on top of the word and he kissed him is because he really wanted to see what he was having. He tried killing him. The other opinion says at that moment he liked him. Though every other time, Halacha, Esau, Seyna, Leakev, Esau forever hates Jacob. So anti-Semitism is not a new phenomenon. It's been as ancient. It's been around all ever since Jews have been around. Some people think that all of a sudden anti-Semitism came because of Christianity, that all of a sudden they're saying that we killed the, you know, the, 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 the Jews killed the Christian God. You know the story about the Jew and the Christian that were neighbors. So the Gentile and his Jewish friend, you know, talking to each other and they're getting along so well. And he says, listen here, we get along and everything is well, but there's one thing I can't stand about you Jews. So he says, what's the problem? He says, you Jews crucified our Lord. So the Jew turns to the Gentile and says, you know what? When you get around to finding our Lord, you can do the same thing to him. <laughs> but it's been around. They've been blaming us for Christianity, but it's not true. As we're soon going to see, that, Christian, that Jew hatred's been around forever. Number two, we will talk about the absurdity in anti-Semitism. And number three, we would see, look, not only is it absurd, but the, all the rationales and everything that comes along with anti-Semitism is actually contradictory to one to the other. So let's start off with the first one about its ancient. And in the next two texts that we're going to see, we'll be starting today on page 48. We're going to be reading two texts, one of them from Tacitus, an ancient Romer, a Roman historian who talks about the conquest of Jerusalem and the history of the Jews and talks about what he viewed as the Jews. The second text, which is text number two, are segments of the Jewish historian is Josephus. Josephus had a very interesting life, and we actually spoke about him a little bit when, uh, during the uh, Tishabov. In Hebrew, he's known as Yosifun. In English, he's known as Josephus Flavius. He was actually part of the Kohanim or the Levites, depending which opinion. But he was a Jewish historian who, so to speak, tried to quell 
the rebellion against the Romans at the time of the Second Temple. He told the Jews they're not going to succeed, and eventually he went on the Roman side, but he, did, he never gave up his Judaism. He wasn't a Hellenist, but he was somebody who, so to speak, took the Roman side in the rebellion of Jerusalem because he believed that the Jewish people weren't going to succeed. Uh, Josephus himself wrote a book called Against Apian, a work where Josephus tries to defend the Jews about the claims of the Hellenized Egyptian uh, philosophers who lived in the first half a century. And while Apian wrote his own writings are not extant, these are quotes of Josephus, which he tries to show how these writings of Apian are distorting what the Jewish people are all about. So we can look at text number one and text number two. Again, those are from the two Roman philosophers, and those are going back, Roman historians, talking about Jews even before Christianity began. So the first one is text number one. Text number one, Tassius slander of the Jews. Once during a plague in Egypt, which caused bodily disfigurement, King Bacchus approached the Oracle of Ammon and asked for a remedy. Now the Oracle of Ammon over there, that was an idolatry where they used to go and ask for what they should do. Whereupon he was told to purge his kingdom and transport this race into other lands, since it was hateful to the gods. So the Hebrews were searched out and gathered together, then being abandoned into the desert, while all others lay idle, weeping, and only to the exiles. Moses by name warned them not to hope for help from gods or men, for then they would be deserted by both, but to trust in themselves. The Jews regarded as profane all what old sacred. On the other hand, they permit all what abhor. They first choose to rest on the seventh day, but after a time they were led by charms of indolence to go over the seventh year, as well as the inactivity. The other customs of the Jews based of abominable, of, uh, abominable their, and owe their persistence to the depravity for the worst rascals amongst other people renouncing their ancestral religions always kept sending tribute and contributions to Jerusalem thereby increasing the wealth of the Jews. What he's referring to over here is that every Jew according to the Torah was obligated to bring tithes to Jerusalem or bring sacrifice to Jerusalem and this is the way they distorted that concept as well. Again, the Jews are extremely loyal to one another because, as you know, as Jewish people, according to Jewish law, have to support the Kohanim and the Levites who served in the Holy Temple. During Temple times, they did not have a property of their own. So therefore, Jews, all the Jews, twice every seven years, had to give to the Levite, every single year to the Kohen, giving um, 10% of their earnings and as well as to the poor people. Again, so that's what he's talking about, the Lord to one another, and always ready to show compassion, but towards every other people, they feel only hate and enmity. That was, as you can see, as we're soon going to go through what he talks about here, anti-Semitism, all the tropes that he, anti-Semitic tropes that exist today are exactly what he's saying here, as we'll soon see in a moment. Text number two, this is actually Josephus trying to defend, but we're going to quote the places where Apian over here talks about and slanders the Jews. He says as follows, text number two, page 50. They tell lies and invent absurd calumnies about our temples without showing any consciousness of impiety. Yet to the high-minded men, nothing is more disgraceful than a lie of any description, above all, the subject of the world, temple of the world, wide fame and commanding sanctity. Within the sanctuary, Empion has effrontery to assert that the Jews kept an ass's head, worshipping that animal and deeming it worthy of the deepest reverence. The fact was disclosed, he dis, was disclosed, he maintains, on the occasion of spolition of the temple in Tiachis Epiphanes, coming up to Hanukkah. I'm sure you heard this name before. Who was the Roman emperor who destroyed the, or tried to destroy the holy temple during Hanukkah? This was him, Antiochus Epiphanes. 
Now you know his last name. When the head made of gold was worth of a high price was discovered, now how did it escape that the fact to convict him of telling an incredible lie? He adds a second story of Greek origin, which has a malicious slander upon the beginning to the end in their anxiety to defend Antiochus. So this Joseph is saying that in order to defend what Antiochus did in trying to destroy the Holy Temple was based on this anti-Semitic idea. And here is a whole theory concocted all anti-Semitic tropes. They are further invented to discredit the fictionist story which follows Apianinus, who is there the spokesman of others, asserts. And here is what he says. Antiochus found in a temple a couch on which a man was reclining. So for starters, nobody was allowed to sit in the holy temple, so there was no couch. So, let's, so, it's, so the whole story is made up. The king's entry was instantly hailed by him with adoration, as about to procure a profound relief. Falling at the king's knees, he stretched out his right hand and implored him to set him free. He said that he was a Greek, and that while traveling about the province of his livelihood, he was suddenly kidnapped by men of foreign race and conveyed to the temple. There he was shut up and seen by nobody, but was fattened on the feast of the most lavish description. As these first unlooked for attentions deceived him and caused him pleasure, suspicion followed, then consternation. Finally, in consulting the attendants who waited upon him, he heard the unutterable law of the Jews, that for the sake of which he was being fed, the practice was repeatedly annulled at a fixed season. They would kidnap a, Greek, a kidnap a Greek foreigner, fatten him up for a year, and then lead him to a certain wood. They would slew him, sacrifice his body with the customary ritual. What does that sound like to you? Blood libels, right? It didn't just start in the 14th century. This is already going back in the first century, in the right over 80 CE. <clears throat> Where they slew him, sacrificed his body with customary ritual, partook his flesh, and while immolating, immolating the Greek swore an oath of enmity to the Greeks. The remains of the victim were there thrown in a pit. The man stated that he had now but a few days to live and implored the king out of respect of the gods of Greece to defeat the Jews' plot of his lifeblood and deliver him from his miserable predicament. Fools must be refuted not by arguments, but by facts. Here then we have a rank of impiety and its worst and a gratuitous, a gratuitous lie designed to mislead persons who do not trouble to investigate the facts. So what do we see from these two things? Way before Christianity even became Christianity, there was already hating of the Jews. Not based because we killed anybody. And look at what they were talking about. Let's take, for example, all the things that they mention in these anti-Semitic two, um, two uh, texts that we just read. What do they go through? Number one, societal problems. In his first thing, Tastia says, our biggest societal problem is Egypt blamed on the Jews. The plagues that are happening are because of the Jews. Isn't that a common thing? When the Delts, 1349, the Black Death, was blamed on the Jews, and many Jews were killed because of it. An interesting thing that actually came up was an interesting thing that why they blamed the Black Death on the Jews. And this was a, a perpetual lie that kept on going on for gener generations generations because Jews washed their hands. So therefore they claimed that the Jews were the only ones that were saved from the plague because they were only cleaned hands. They said, the proof, look, you always see them washing their hands. Why do they always wash their hands for bread when they wake up in the morning? But again, this was part of the story that was concocted. And even that part of the story is not, is, was incorrect. But regardless, the black plague was blamed on the Jews. COVID was blamed on the Jews. And it, the story doesn't, doesn't stop. And you can see, if you want to know, the American Jewish Committee issued a report in May of 2020. There was a group of people that were blaming COVID on the Jews. So, wasn't Josephus, don't they use his writings as to um, show what actually happened? 
Correct. So we use a lot of Josephus. Even the rab- rabbis do find it's mentioned in the Talmud what Josephus. But again, we don't know what he used to, so to speak, convince the non-Jews what was happening. But, but a lot of what we know happened during the time of the, destru- of the destruction of the Second Temple, or even during the Second Temple, is a lot from Josephus. Yeah, so that's why Yosifun, that's what he's known as in Hebrew. And it's a lot of that that's bringing to him. Another thing that he talks about. Jews are lazy. You see that also he brings that. He says that they're not interested in working and so on. Same thing again. The Jews are idle, they're lazy. That leads them directly to becoming parasites. Wasn't that the communist issue? Wasn't that the Germans saying, oh, we're just parasites, we're feeding off everybody else. Then the next thing was, they're rejected by gods. They don't listen to our gods. They have their own gods. They don't want to go to our gods. That's what he went to the God of Ammon to find out. Again, this is something which is not only from the past, but it's a continuous type of argument. Opposing values. The Jews don't share the same values like us. They're diametrically opposed in every way. The value of the Jew system is contrary to what us and implying that the Jews have no place in a non-Jewish society. That was the ancient argument. And as we can see, nothing changed. Another argument they had was, as you can see, the Jews are wealthy. First they say that they're parasites. Now they're saying that we're wealthy and therefore we own the, we own the banks, we own the newspapers, we own the stock market. The same idea, same argument. Which, which uh, uh, newspaper do you read? That's right. You read the Jewish paper, we're all in the connection. So you're saying they take it. You read the other one, oh look, they all have money. You know to say the story about this guy that was traveling on the train and he sees his Jewish friend reading the Pravda. So he says, what are you reading the Pravda for? The anti-Semitic paper. He says, listen here, I read the Jewish newspaper, it sounds like, oh, this guy's miserable, all the problems. I read the Pravda, it says how great the Jews are. (laughs) That's why he reads the Pravda. But you know, they say Jews about being obsessed with wealth. It was about the two Jews that heard that all of a sudden that the priest was giving $100 for every convert that walks in. So one Jew says, no, let me go try it out. So he goes inside, he gets his $100, and as he walks out, the other Jew asks him, no, was it worth it? Did he give you the money? The guy looks at him, all you Jews think about is money. <laughs> so you see, they were about wealthy. The next thing is, they say, what is the Jews wealthy? Where do they get their wealth from? They rip off the Jews. Then I'm sorry, they rip off the non-Jews. Yeah, they ripped off the Jews too, I guess. <laughs> they hate the non-Jews. They kill the non-Jews. They're the most, they hate them. And then the most out of all of them, as we saw in the end of the last one, was cruel rituals, blood libels. And if you want to go back, probably the blood libel started. We thought the blood libel started off in Europe. We see very clearly that Josephus talks about a blood libel that Antiochus, so to speak, justified as reason for going into the Holy Temple. Question? Yes. So has it ever been, now that we've learned about this, has anybody ever decided why it So that's we're going to get to in a moment. Oh, that's today's class. That's what it's about. Okay, so first we're going to talk about the absurdity of all of it, and then, but the absurdity is that it, this didn't stop anti-Semitism. No. Not only that, it didn't stop anti-Semites from believing in it, even though it's just as old, and they use this type of behavior to justify their barbaric tormentation of what they did to the Jews throughout history, and this absurdity continues until today. Until today. Just let's use one example of today's day and age. The one example is right up here. You can see conspiracy theories of September 11th. I remember they were saying, look, the Jews did September 11th. Terrorist government of Israel cannot be ruled out as a suspect. You can see it in text number three. Conspiracy theories are really logical. It is not surprising then that even Al-Qaeda, even as Al-Qaeda took credit for the September 11 attacks, the group did nothing to stop a rumor claiming that the Jews were really responsible. The rumor alleged 
that Israel, specifically the Mossad's Israel intelligence, was behind the plot and had warned Jews not to go to work in the World Trade Center on the day of the attacks. It's an interesting thing. Why did they come up with that theory? Of course, they like to prove it. It's because that day there was slichus. It was the day that people were saying extra prayers before Rosh Hashanah. So therefore, many Jews showed up late to work. And it's not a new thing. Ask any work. When did the Jews show up? Late. So therefore, they said, oh, must be the Jews did it. On September 18th, an editor for a website known as Information Times posted a message claiming the terrorist government of Israel cannot be ruled out as a suspect. The editor did not identify motive or provide evidence in support of his allegation. In his words, he simply was raising a reasonable question, in quotes. Five days later, Amunar TV station based in Lebanon stated Mossad has indeed warned 4,000 Jews who worked in the World Trade Center to stay at home on September 11th. Unfortunately, eight, I think it was, um, I think it was 18, what? Lebanese, yeah. Unfortunately, 18% of the people killed in the World Trade Center were Jewish. The, in September, within days, that the rumor appeared in newspapers and electronic mailing lists around the world. People continued to believe the lie, despite the fact that 18% of no one were identified as obituaries and Jews. So what we see over here is that, number one, anti-Semitism, we have to remember, is not a new phenomenon. It's been around ever since Jews have been around. But what's even more absurd about it is the, the, no, it's, not only is it absurd, but how contradictory it is. And here's a little video about a great scholar known as Rabbi Menachem Zemba. He was a famous rabbi in Poland who was murdered by the Nazis during the Warsaw Ghetto. And this is what he wrote right before the Nazi invasion. On the east bank of the Vistula River in the Warsaw suburb of Praga, a Jewish boy was born in 1883 and named Menachem, he who brings comfort. His father, Elazar Zemba, died shortly after, and the boy was raised by his grandfather. He became rapidly known as a dazzling genius and formidable Torah scholar, corresponding with the best Torah minds of his era. Menachem Zemba married at age 18. His wealthy father-in-law supported him for 20 years while he studied and put pen to paper, authoring over 10,000 pages of original Torah insights including commentaries on Maimonides' magnum opus and on the Jerusalem Talmud and four volumes of halachic responsa. His fame spread globally. He was offered rabbinical positions, including the office of the chief rabbi of Jerusalem, but he humbly shunned leadership. Leadership was thrust upon him in 1935 by order of the Grand Rabbi of Ger. The humble rabbi joined the Warsaw Rabbinate and proved his worth becoming a world authority on Jewish law and a foremost spokesman for Polish Jewry. Before reaching age 40, Rabbi Zemba was appointed honorary secretary to Moretzis Gedoli at Torah, the council of great Torah sages, populated by sages twice his age. In 1937, he twice addressed the full assembly and was treated with awe. Then the Nazis arrived. Jewish Warsaw was reduced to a ghetto. 460,000 people were imprisoned in just 1.3 square miles. Starvation, disease, deportation, murder. Despite repeated offers of escape, Rabbi Zamba refused to abandon his flock. 
For them, he was a rare pillar of comfort. As one of a handful of rabbis who survived in the ghetto until its final days, he rallied his desperate brethren with powerful messages of hope and determination. He recorded an insight into the nature of anti-Semitism before the war. In light of his subsequent experiences under Nazi depravity, his words ring with timeless poignancy. There are those who seek to identify legitimate causes for the hatred of Jews. However, reality has shown that there is no legitimate reason. Anti-Semitism has no justifiable cause. The haters simply choose to hate God's people. This is demonstrated by the fact that Jews are hated for being capitalists and also for being socialists. They are hated because they are overly ambitious and sharp-minded, and also because they are indolent and parasitic. They are hated because they are too religious and conservative, and also because they advance progressive and secular ideas. The reasons for this hatred are consistently contradictory, and have not an ounce of logic behind them. Shortly before Passover, 1943, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising erupted Amid furious fighting and flames, Rabbi Zeba calmly conducted a Passover Seder as if nothing was amiss. But on the fifth day of Passover, April 24, 1943, Rabbi Zeba was gunned down by Nazi bullets. The community he shepherded with love and sacrifice came together at a terrible risk to bury their beloved rabbi in a temporary grave. His family was deported to Treblinka none survived. His lifetime of copious writings rose to heaven in the Warsaw fires. Hardly any of it survived. In 1958, his body was exhumed. Tens of thousands of people amassed, including an array of leading Jewish sages, to lay the heroic rabbi to eternal rest in dignity. Reality has proven that this righteous man was right. There is no legitimate reason for the hatred leveled in each generation against the innocent men, women, and children of the Jewish people. So the contradictory hate that exists in anti-Semitism, they used to say, that once uh, the Poland post-World War premier was having a meeting with uh, Woodrow Wilson, and he demanded, and he said, if we don't come to a resolution by this conference table, then I can see that in my country there's going to be trouble, that they'll be so irritated at people that they'll go out and get drunk and kill the Jews. And says, so President Woodrow Wilson turns to him and says, what happens if we do come to a resolution? So he says, then they'll party and get drunk and go out and kill the Jews. It doesn't make sense. The contradictory type of behavior, there's no logic, as you can see, that we read it over here in the video in text number four, as Rabbi Zemba said. In each society, we have the issue that will most inflame the people at the time or all of a sudden to blame the Jews. First, they're blamed for being socialists. Then they're blamed for being capitalists. First, they're blamed for being ambitious. Then they'll be blamed for being lazy. First, we're blamed for being religious. 
then all of a sudden we're going to get the blame for the ones introducing secular philosophy to everybody. And then we're blamed for... There we go. Next one. Oops. So the concept is that whatever is at the time, or whatever the problems are at the time, it's all of a sudden the blames come to the Jewish people, and whatever it is, whether it makes sense or it doesn't make sense. So what we see over here, the absurdity of anti-Semitism, we're going to get there. <laughs> so the absurdity of anti-Semitism, number one, A, it's as ancient as it is. Number two, it's absurd. And number three, most importantly, it's contradictory. But what does that lead us to? To two very important points. Number one, to recognize that as delusional it may be, sometimes somebody may say, so why don't we just educate them and teach them and show them that this is not what it is. And that's maybe to a certain extent what Joseph has tried to do. But the problem is, with the real anti-Semitism, hardcore haters will not allow facts to destroy their beliefs. Tell them what they want, be it as it may, you can stand on your head and spin nickels, this is what they believe. You can explain to them from today to tomorrow, it's something which is so ingrained, it's just a hate. As you can see in text number 5, from the Borah Lipstadt, that we mentioned her last week, the historian, she says as follows, It is hard, if not impossible, to explain something that is essentially irrational, delusional, and absurd. That is the nature of all conspiracy theories of which anti-Semitism is just one. Think about it. Why do some people insist that moon landings took place at a stage set someplace in American West, despite the existence of reams of scientific and personal evidence to the contrary? They believe this because they subscribe to the notion that the government or other powerful entities are engaged in vast conspiracies to fool the public. If we were to provide these conspiracy theorists with evidence that proves the landing was indeed on the moon, they would prayer dismiss what we say and assume that we are part of the conspiracy. To try to defeat an irrational suspicion, especially when it is firmly held by its proponents, with a rational explanation is virtually impossible. Any information that does not correspond with the conspiracy theorists' preferred social, political, or ethnic narratives is ipso facto false. Social scientists have described such theories as having self-sealing quality that makes them particularly immune to challenge. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try, and therefore we do have, so to speak, education type of things, the AJC, there's many organizations that lovely put out all these different types of explanations. I think just recently there's big billboards in Times Square of these little quotes of trying to educate the masses about it, and I think those are more educating the people that are not anti-Semites but are maybe sympathetic or seeing anti-Semites to let them know what these people doing are is not normal. But, yes? Correct. But this is not about them, this is about somebody else, the phobia. Right, exactly. A second point about, that we find about anti-Semitism is the name anti-Semitism and anti-Semite. Who do you think ever came up with the name anti-Semite? The anti-Semites themselves. They made that name. Why? Because they wanted to gain, so to speak, a respectable theory. So therefore they created Semites, because the actual Semites, where does it mean from the people of Shem? That's what some people want to say. These were the original Semites, but therefore technically almost everybody is from Shem, and even Romans are from Shem, so it really doesn't work out well. But the concept was that they wanted to have, so to speak, a respectable place on the world stage. And at that time, you became an anti-this, and an anti-this, and an anti-that, and it was an anti-Semite. If you see it over here, Ma Willem, in 1818, 1904, German writer, political theorist, and agitator, in 1879, 
Marr founded the Anti-Semite League. He was the first one to call it. The first organization devoted exclusively to promoting political anti-Semitism. Marr's organization reflected the secular racism, which existed inconsistently along his religious anti-Semitism. His self-proclaimed goal was to free Christianity from the yoke of Judaism. That was his official thing. Marr coined the term anti-Semitus, which is anti-Semitism, which for him denoted a secular racial hatred of the Jews. He used the word anti-Semitism to make hatred seem rational, sanctioned by science on being polite. So, given the absurdity of anti-Semitism, not to speak about even the horrific suffering that people did in the name of anti-Semitism, it should be obvious that we should not dignify any type of this type of ludicrous. And probably the much better term can be found amongst the writing of a young Jewish woman in her writing in 17th century Germany. The story goes of a woman by the name of Glockel of Hamden. Glockel Hamden was a woman who she was a Jewish businesswoman in Germany during the second half of the 17th century. She authored a memoir that talks about it, recounts the story of what happened with the Jews at the time, with what happened in 1687. In 1687, just to put the story in short, there was a non-Jewish resident of the city of Hamburg. Hamburg was a very big Jewish population, and there was a non-Jewish, non-Jewish person in the city of Hamburg who was sentenced to death by the local authorities, not by the Jewish authorities, by the local authorities for murdering two innocent Jewish people. Now, you can imagine for the anti-Semites of the time, this was too much for them to handle that a non-Jew should be killed for doing nothing, just killing two Jews. And therefore, they decided that on the day of his execution, they were going to make a massive demonstration and agitation amongst the masses to be able to get people to rebel. And this is what she called it, text number seven. On the day of the murderer was sentenced to death, there was a commotion in Hamburg that had not been seen for hundreds of years before, over a man sentenced to death. The lives of all Jews were in danger. Now listen to the word she uses, not anti-Semitism. Due to the extreme rishus, the extreme wickedness that had been roused. Thankfully all ended well, the authorities were able to keep it under control and no Jewish people were hurt at the time. But what she does over here, she does not give credence to the word anti-Semitism. She decides it's not anti-Semitism, but call it what it is, call a spade a spade. It's evil. It's evil at its core. It's evil, and that's what it is. And therefore, while we continue to refer to anti-Semitism during this course, we must never forget that what anti-Semitism is, pure evil, nothing more, nothing less. And now we're going to come to Elaine's question. But why? Why? If it's so ancient, it's so absurd, it's contradictory, it's evil, why the Jews? Why? Why this absurd hatred that people have against us for so many years and so many times? Why? And many have attempted to explain the strange phenomena to this blind Jew hatred. Text number 8 from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. He says as follows. Page 60. There has been almost endless set of speculations about what was the cause of anti-Semitism actually is. Some have been seen it as psychological terms. A displaced fear, externalization of inner conflict, projected guilt, the creation of a scapegoat. Others have given an associate political explanation. Jews were a group who conveniently be blamed for economic treatment, social unrest, class conflict, destabilizing change. Cultural, yet others viewed it 
As a prism of cultural identity, Jews were stereotyped outsiders against a group who can define itself. Yet others, noting the concentration of anti-Semitism amongst the very faiths, Christianity and Islam, that traced their descent to Abraham and Judaism in favor of Freudian explanation in terms of the myth of Oedipus. Oedipus, there you go, I'm sorry. We will seek to kill those who gave us birth. It would be strange, indeed, if such a complex phenomenon did not give the rise to multiple explanations. So here you have psychological, sociopolitical, cultural, religious. Pick your choice. Everybody has an explanation. Do any of them explain it? They sound like excuses instead of explanations. So what really is explanation? So... In order for us to try to get to the bottom of it, we turn back to what we went to last week. And one of the biggest cases of anti-Semitism in Jewish history, the story of Haman and Esther and Mordechai. And looking at it from an explanation that the Lubavitcher Rebbe gives will give us a little bit of a gain, a better idea on what to do, more importantly, what to do and what not to do in our quest to outsmart anti-Semitism. So let's go back to the story of Esther and Mordechai the story of Haman looking to destroy the Jews. Back in the book of Esther, Haman, the evil fellow, comes along to Achashverosh and asks Achashverosh, he seeks to destroy the Jews. And therefore he approaches Achashverosh with 10,000 silver coins. He says, I'm willing to put into the treasury of the Jewish people. Achashverosh tells him, you don't need to convince me. You don't need to give me any reasons. To keep the money, here's the signet ring. Do as you wish. Haman tell, he tells Haman, the silver you can keep and the people do as what pleases you. Those are his words. Commenting on this exchange where Haman comes along and says, I got a group of people, we got to get rid of them. Achashverosh says, no problem, go ahead. The Talmud gives a fascinating parable about this. And the Talmud says as follows. Text number 9. Page 61. We can use a parable to gain insight into the respective positions of Achashverosh and Haman. They are similar to two individuals, one who has a tall mound in his field, whereas the other has a ditch in his field. The owner of the ditch amused himself, if I wish I can only buy the tall mound to fill up my ditch. The owner of the mound said to himself, I wish I can purchase the, the, right dump, the right to dump my mound in his empty ditch. Not long afterwards, the two men met. The owner of the dish said, sell me your mound. The owner of the mound said, take it for free. You'll do me a favor. This is the exchange that the Talmud says. That over here, Haman seeks to destroy the Jewish people. He's got the ditch. Achashverosh got the mound. Achashverosh says, okay, take my mound. Don't even pay me for it as long as you get rid of it out of my field. What's this parable? What's the Talmud telling me about this parable? Why does the Talmud have to give me a parable about anti-Semitism? Haman hated Jews, Achashverosh hated the Jews, and therefore they were more than willing than happy to kill the Jews. But even more so, the analogy doesn't seem exactly the same. What was Haman trying to do? Haman seemed like he was more interested in destroying than filling. He seemed like he was set on the fact that he wants to destroy all the Jewish people in one day. Wipe out Jewish people from history forever, God forbid. That's what it looks like Haman. He's not literally filling him out. So why over here does the Talmud compare the two to this? And over here the Talmud is explaining us what does it mean 
two dimensions of an anti-Semite. There are two types of anti-Semites. There's a pile and there's a ditch. What is a pile? Achashverosh is your typical racist, anti-Semitic racist. He's got a mound. He has an extra stuff in his field. He sees the Jewish people as something unnecessary, something which is, get it out of my field. You're just a nuisance. You're just a pain. You're, anything that's going to happen in the world is going to be their fault and blame everything on their Jews. You're a typical racist anti-Semite. You're different. I despise you. Nothing in the world will make you better. Just find some place and bury yourself there. That's all. That was Achashverosh. If this would be the sum total of anti-Semitism, it would be depressing. It would seem like it would leave us with no other choice to be hated. And the only solution, so to speak, for the anti-Semite would be for Jews to completely disappear. God forbid. But here comes the other half of the analogy, which is Haman. Haman is a ditch. And Haman over here is a little deeper than Achashverosh. In fact, Achashverosh is referred to in the Talmud as a fool. He wasn't able to see past a certain purview. And over here, what Haman was trying to do, he was to a saying, you know, Haman had a good life, considerably. He actually believed he was going to be the next king because he had wealth, he had family, he had servants, he had anything a man wanted. He was considered the wealthiest man of his time. But he was still had a void in his life. He had an emptiness in his life. He had a life that seemingly was so meaningless. Even though he had all the pleasures in life, but it was meaningless. He had an inner void that he, whenever he encountered a Jew, it would stir him up and get him angry. As you see in text number 10, Haman told him about his magnificent wealth and his many sons. This is from the Megillah. And how the king had promoted him and advanced him above all other officials in the royal courtiers. What is more, said Haman, Queen Esther personally prepared a visa besides the king and did not invite anyone but me. And tomorrow too I am invited by her, along with the king. But what does he continue and conclude? But all this means nothing to me. Because each time I see Mordechai the Jew sitting at the palace gate, he gets angry. Why does Mordechai stir such an anger in him? Why does Mordechai get angry at him? Why does he have everything you want? You're the only guy being invited to the meal. You're the only one being invited to the feast. Why does Mordechai get you angry? Because every time he sees Mordechai, he feels emptiness within himself. Every time he sees Mordechai, he refuses to bow before him. You have a simple Jew who his only niece or sister or cousin or wife at the time was taken away from him, sitting in the palace gates, and he looks happy, content. He's about to be destroyed and killed and everything in Haman's eyes. He doesn't seem amused. He has satisfaction in life. Every time I see Mordechai, I get stirred by this emptiness, this worthlessness that me as a Jew, that me as Haman has. So when Haman confronted Mordechai, what does he say? What does Mordechai tell him? I don't bow to you. We got the Torah from Sinai. You don't really make a difference in my life. You're meaningless. And over here he gets all angry. And in fact, what was his argument to Achashverosh? These Jews, they got laws. These Jews have a Torah. And the Torah gives them meaning. And they're willing to do God's commands and up to self-sacrifice. What do I have? This created a ditch. That's why the Talmud uses that terminology. A ditch which caused them ultimately leaving empty, angry, 
And what, uh, what's the problem here? The Torah tells us that every single human being has a purpose in this world, Jew and non-Jew alike. And therefore, when a Jew fulfills his purpose, feels meaningful. When a non-Jew fulfills his purpose, will feel meaningful as well. But Haman had a choice. Either he can fill his ditch and make his life meaningful as well, or kill the person who's making my life, or showing me that my life is not meaningful. And this caused Haman to resent and to feel that the ditch, and he said, I figured, well, how would he get rid of his ditch if I'll just get rid of the ditch, so to speak, the people that have to fill the ditch or are making that ditch in my mind. Though Haman could have picked a better option, and he didn't. So therefore, what's the Talmud telling us over here is? The Talmud's telling us that this is the anti-Semite in every generation. In every generation, there are two types of anti-Semites. There's an anti-Semite that's just a pure racist who's foolish, stupid, ignorant, and there's nothing you're going to do about them other than if you disappear. That's the Yachashverosh. But then you have an anti-Semite who's feeling a void, who has a ditch within themselves. You have a Haman. Sees beyond the purview. And why he's such an anti-Semite is because there's something stirring within himself that he is looking for. And the problem is that instead of filling his void, instead of making his life meaningful... He thinks that if I'm going to get rid of the meaningful people, I'll become meaningful. So what do we do about it? How do we go about it? So when it comes to fighting anti-Semitism, if we want to call it, there are many different ways and explanations of how we go about it. And the truth is, more important than the explanation of why anti-Semitism is, per se, or the orientation of the explanation... And the reason of anti-Semitism is the question what we do about it. And many Jews, so to speak, took anti-Semitism and took an inward explanation to it. Saying, look, these guys are racists, so therefore we have to do something. And what the way we're going to do about it is we're going to try to avoid expressing Judaism as to not to stoke the flames, so to speak, and not to incite them. And therefore they changed their lifestyle maybe because of it. When a child is bullied, are we going to come along and say, oh, maybe the child shouldn't go on the playground because the bully's there? Or are we going to take the bully and teach him that he shouldn't be bullying people? A similar idea when it comes to anti-Semitism. We have to remember that Jew hatred is in the hater. It has nothing to do with our choices. We should not internalize anti-Semitism. We should not allow anti-Semitism to make us and think that we have to change because of a hater. The hater is the problem, not the people that are being hated. Let's see it from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. He says it very clearly in text number 11, page 64. Jews must fight anti-Semitism, but never internalize it. That is easier said than done if you are hated. It is natural for you to believe that you are hateful, that the defect lies in you, like a bully in a playground. It really does. Hate exists in the mind of the hater, not in the person of the hated. Jews have faults, and Judaism is a religion of self-criticism and repentance. But those faults have nothing to do with those of which are accused by our enemies. Anti-Semitism tells us about anti-Semites, not Jews. One of the mistakes made by good, honorable, and reflective Jews was to believe that since Jews were hated because they were different, they should try as far as possible not to be different. 
So some converted, others assimilated, yet other Jews formula, others formulate, reformulated Judaism to eliminate as far as possible all that made Jewish, Jews and Judaism distinctive. When these things failed, as they did, not only in the 19th century Germany, Austria, but also in 15th century Spain, some internalized this failure. Thus was born the tortured psychology known as Jewish self-hatred. Extreme examples of internalizing anti-Semitism come all the way to complete assimilation. Meaning, if you look back, going back in Spain, where Jews felt that they can be the conversos, on the outside they were like the Christians, and on the inside they were like Jews, but many of them were not able to stand the challenge and converted to, to Christianity, left Judaism. Go just back in the 19th century, the, the level of the Enlightenment, who created the term, the Reconstructionist movement, or there was a fellow by the name of ben, um, Yitzchak Ber, I think his name was, who created the concept of saying, Yehudi b'veisecha v'goi b'veisecha, be a Jew in your house and a non-Jew when you go out. They wanted to be able to, and that what that brought to was a complete assimilation, renouncing the traditions, be embarrassed of who we are. These attempts were unsuccessful in solving anti-Semitism. Every single one of them. They thought the more we assimilate, the more we can be like them, the more they'll accept us. They still didn't let them into their universities, they still didn't allow them to have jobs, and so on and so forth. American Jews thought the same. When we came to the shores of America and all of a sudden if we act more like them, then they'll take us into their, into their businesses and so on and so forth. It didn't work. Not only did it not work that they should accept us, but what happened to Judaism? All of a sudden we started renouncing our beliefs, renouncing our things. And who changed because of it? Not the anti-Semites. Unfortunately, the Jews. They hated By changing themselves to solve anti-Semitism, those well-meaning Jews looked in the wrong direction and all of a sudden, nothing was happened. So what do we have to do? The only solution is the explanations for anti-Semitism must be turned outward. What does it mean to be turned outward? Hate exists in the mind of the hater, not in the person that is hated. And therefore, any time you find yourself in thinking about or discussing why do they hate us or why of the anti-Semitism, Know that the overall approach, it's not if only we would do this and they wouldn't hate us. That didn't work. It never did and it never will. It's been disproven by countless years of Jewish history and suffering. That if only we would do this, if I only wouldn't wear my yarmulke, if I only wouldn't do this, well, then it wouldn't change. Absolutely wrong. Not only that. When we as Jews stand strong and not cower to all the people around us, we are not only helping ourselves, but we are helping every single minority group out there. Every single person who has been persecuted by people because since they were bullied about who they are. So when we talk about not doing things because of stoking anti-Semitism, what we're actually doing is we're being cowards to the bullies, we're being cowards to the anti-Semites, we're being cowards to any person of hating or any racist out there. As we see very clearly, text number 12. This is from Rabbi Dr. Dr. Twersky. The Jewish desire to be less noticeable. I was once traveling on a bus dressed in my customary garb, wearing a black hat and a black frock coat. This is Dr. Twersky, just passed away last year. He's a very famous psychiatrist, world-renowned, and wherever he walked around with a long white beard, and he looked like a Hasidic Rebbe. In fact, he came from a Hasidic dynasty, from a, 
a Rebbe dynasty, and that's the way he dressed. But he was a well-known psychiatrist and helped thousands of people. And he says, he was once a man approached me and said, I think it's shameful that young appearance is so different, that your appearance is so different. There is no need for Jews in America to be so conspicuous with long beards and blackouts. I'm sorry, mister, I said to the man. I'm not Jewish. I'm Amish. And this is how he dressed. The man became apologetic. Oh, I'm terribly sorry, sir, he said. I did not mean to offend you. I think you should be proud of you preserving your traditions. Why? What happened here? Because we get embarrassed of who we are. And this is what he was proving. When we say, do Jews belong in America? Do Jews belong in Canada? Do Jews belong in the UK? What does it mean you belong? If the answer is yes, that you belong someplace, that you belong there, you can be there as you are. Not conforming to being someplace else. Belonging someplace means that I can be there, confirming where I belong here, benefits that other, uh, so uh, confirming that we belong here, knowing and understanding that if Jews are forced to conceal, whether it's their menorah, their mezuzah, for whatever reason, whether it's a government or whether it's a, what do they call them, the H, uh, HOAs, you know, the, the, home, uh, the home complex thing that tell you you can't put up a mezuzah, any one of those things, whatever law it may be. Any type of self-censorship is telling yourself that will cause anti-Semitism is saying you don't belong. To the contrary, when we express Judaism in public, whether it's a piece of our jewelry, whether it's a kippah, whether it's a menorah, it confirms to us, us the people wearing it, and us to the Jews around us, that, and even to the anti-Semites, that you're not getting rid of us. We're here to stay, and this is our country just like yours. If anything, today's day and age, when we notice the rise in anti-Semitism, one of the things that changed in today's day and age, the silver lining, is today that Jewish people are becoming more proud of their Judaism. I don't know if you remember, in France, there was this whole thing that this Jew was, ta- uh, some anti-Semite took the yarmulke or, or off a, a, or some prime, not a, a, like a minister in France said, maybe Jews shouldn't be wearing their kippahs. And all of a sudden, all the Jews came out and they made like a big march of everybody wearing their kippah, even people that never wore the yarmulke. It teaches us because this brought out a certain strength within Jews. As you can see in text 13, this is from Barry Weiss. She writes, In the first three decades of my life, I never wore a Magen David necklace. It always seemed redundant to me. But since the Pittsburgh attack, I've worn the Jewish star pendant regularly, especially in public venues and in situations where I'm conscious of being one of the only Jews in the room. The show of pride has become important to me. I want people to know that I am unafraid. This is an example set by Mitchell Leschnitzer during his middle school graduation in the spring of Vernon Hills, Illinois. Leschnitzer doesn't usually wear a kippah, but the Poway shooting changed things for the 14-year-old. It was important to make a statement that we're still here, and no matter what happens, we'll still be here, he said. So the benefit, that number one, of being proud of who we are, confirms we belong here, benefits other minorities, those people who are afraid to show about they are, and those people who are sitting to the side, like the historian Cecil Roth puts it, that Jews have served as an important role for many centuries to those people around them, in text number 14. In fact, perhaps by the greatest service of the medieval Jew mankind, it was the period when authority was triumphant in the intellectual sphere. When thought was circumcised even more than a practice, when uniformity had established itself not as an ancient but as a principle throughout European life, had the state of affairs continued unchallenged, progress scientific as well as philosophical would have been impossible. The mere fact that the Jew existed 
and that he had preserved the habit of independent thought helped us save the world from this menace. It was impossible even for the last original mind to fail to realize that in the Jewish quarter there existed a class as intelligent at least as other men were. Well, who yet did not believe as other men, who possessed literature and beliefs and practices which were not like those of the rest of the world, who refused to pay even lip service to the prevailing ideas. This very fact saved the world from accepting uniformity finally as a natural thing. It stimulated students and thinkers to realize the existence of other spheres, to conquer over above which were delineated from the pulpit. And that from time to time, Europe shook off its lethargy and began to re-examine for itself the walls of human thought, the propiniquity of the Jew was partly responsible. There were many times that I've heard, I think just a few years ago when I was sitting by one of these 9-11 commemorations, um, the priest that was sitting there tells me, when I see you walk around with your yarmulke and sits, it gives me the power to tell other people about his, about his religion. Some people get ashamed of who they are. But when they see the Jewish people are proud of who they are, they say, I shouldn't be ashamed of who I am as well and for what I stand for. So simply being proud to be different than which Jews have always represented, you don't have to be like anybody else. You don't have to conform to society. You can be who you are. Allows, and essentially we're fighting this fight not only for Jews, but for all of humanity. But even more so, this outward posture, as we mentioned, gives us the ability to have an influence. Let's go back to the story of Esther for a moment. Esther invites Achashverosh and Haman to this party. And when she invites Achashverosh and Haman to the party, she tells Achashverosh, there is one guy who seeks to destroy me and my people. So Achashverosh said, okay, I like you. If he's such a real anti-Semite, right? He says, I like you. I'll save you. Well, who cares about the other people? But what did Esther say? Achashverosh, she tells Achashverosh and it says, they want to seek to destroy me and my people. For I am my people. What is that saying? The only reason why I am here, the only reason why you like me, what you love me, what you see great in me, is because of my people, is because of who I am. I'm not Esther in an isolation. I am Esther the Jewess, and that's why I am Esther who you love. And therefore you need to save the Jewish people. And Achashver says, if this is what causes you to be who you are, then those people are special. As we see it in text number 15. All that Esther had to do was prove that the conclusion presented by Haman following his arguments against the Jews, namely, that it was not the king's interest to let them remain, was false. She told the king, It is true that the nation, as Haman stated, a people scattered and separated being a nation. It is also true that their laws differ from other people. Nevertheless, despite this, she told King Achashverosh, you can see for yourself that Haman's conclusion that it is not the king's interest to let them remain is not true. To the contrary, you can see the uniqueness of the Jewish people is actually a positive quality. This response is assistantly captured in the words of Esther, spoke the Hashverish, May my life be given in my, report, in my petition and the people of my request. The Haman's claim that letting the Jews live was against the king's interest, Esther responded. You should realize that this is the nation from which I, Esther, emerged. It is my nation, the people that produced me, that raised and educated me and conduct myself in its ways. You know well that you selected me from the finest of ladies who were themselves selected from 127 countries of your empire. And if you have in front of you the evidence, then the entire complaint is without basis. Achashverosh agreed. 
He was familiar with Esther's superior qualities and exemplary behavior. When he learned from her that her conduct was reflected of those of the Jewish people, my people, he was left with one question. Who in their right mind would seek to destroy a people that produces such great people like Esther? It can only be an evil and dangerous Haman. Just like Esther was a role model in her time, so too we can all be a role model in our time as well. And this is that when we have to remember that when we do something good and we act and behave in a certain way, people should see that it's, yes, the Jewish person that's doing it. I don't know if you just saw, there was this unbelievable video going viral. This Chassid, Chabad rabbi from Spain. I, know, I think Spain. He was speaking Spanish. I, I don't know. But, uh, South, American. South American. I don't know why I said Spain. But a Chabad rabbi is on the train and he sees a um, non-Jewish guy, a black guy without, without shoes. And he just bought a pair of sneakers. He took off his shoes, gave it to the guy, and kept the sneakers. I think he should have given the guy his sneakers. But, <laughs> but he gave the guy his black shoes, and you see the black guy coming off the train. Wow, look, I got a new style today. But over here, everybody on the train saw a person who visibly looks Jewish, Hasidic, taking a pair of shoes and giving it and seeing a homeless person. What did that tell all the people on the train? That told all the people in the train that all the anti-Semitic tropes that you hear are blatantly lies. <laughs> so when they see a person who behaves like a Jew and because of this behaves better than the average person, if you want to call it, or even not better, or just doing the right thing, you already dismissed all the notions that were there. That you say about a woman on a train, talk about a guy on a train, walked up to this guy and says, excuse me, sir, are you Jewish? So the guy says, yeah, you know, tries to dismiss her again, you know, and says, and then the guy says, then she comes up to him again, excuse me, sir, are you Jewish? He says, I, I don't, I'm not sure, I don't know. So he's, 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 then he goes, and then she, again she comes to him, excuse me, sir, are you Jewish? He says, I'm absolutely not Jewish, leave me alone. So then she goes, and finally for a fourth time, she says, excuse me, sir, are you Jewish? He says, okay. Fine, yeah, I think, I'm, I think my mother from my right side is Jewish. She says, you know why? Because you don't look Jewish. <laughs> but what I said last week, I don't know if you remember, that I was talking to my friend, I stopped, uh, there was an accident on the LA, yeah. and he said, when you went outside to help the lady, did you put your yarmulke on? And I said, I didn't. He says, anytime that he does something like that in public, and why? And it's why is it so important? Because that a non-Jew, and I think this, if we're talking about dispelling the myths, this is the best education that you can give to the non-Jews when they see that Jews who are proud of their Judaism are also examples and pillars of the world. I mean, if you want to educate them, just look at how many of the um, Nobel uh, awards were given to Jews, or that's just going to make them jealous, right? But how many of medications were made? That's why when they said when those people wanted a, uh, the BDS, if they, want to, um, if they want to ban Israel or whatever else, they shouldn't take penicillin, they shouldn't use their cell phone, they shouldn't use all the other things. People are not aware of it. And when people realize that the Jewish people's contribution to society, to people, not only that, I'm not going to go into, if you look at the charity in the world that's given, 40% of the world's charity that is given is given by Jews. Now I'm not talking about the Jewish causes. The Jews are non-Jewish causes. And we're not even 0.1%. If you look at the charity that's given, I'm taking take an example. 
in the billionaires of the Jewish billionaires and the non-Jewish billionaires of how they give their charity. Take Bloomberg, who's worth 21 billion or whatever he is, and take huh, 45 billion and, and Bill Gates and just compare the two. Bloomberg is giving more charity than Bill Gates. Why? Because Bill Gates' charity is either giving it in Africa or he's giving kids to use computers that have his own PC and everything else. So, it's it, it, not a joke. This is a reality. He's giving away all his money. He's giving in the foundation. Uh, correct. It's all... Well, my point is that as Jewish people, we should be proud of our contribution to society as Jewish people, and I think that will dispel, in my opinion, as we can see, as we see what it can do. A modern-day example of this effect is to take an extreme case here. Born in 1946 in Jerusalem, he spent his years committed to being an anti-Semite. He was a senior Fatah operative. And one time, he, and just recently, this is where in, in 2014, this same guy, a professor in Quds University, led a trip of Palestinian students to Auschwitz, the first of its kind, and he was, of course, fired because of that crime. Um, and what triggered his change, he says as follows, in 2019, he gave the following interview, text number 16. I started going with my father to Hadassah in Karim Hospital for chemotherapy. And to my shock, I started to observe that the doctors and the nurses treated him as a patient. The doctors were friendly, and the nurses were also. He would bring them fruit, flowers, and chocolate. And I noticed in the hospital that Palestinians were also receiving treatment. That actually awakened me a great extent to humanity in the other, and it also awakened my humanity. This was the starting point. He was a Fatah member. And he believed that Israelis all there into his killing Arabs. But then he came to the hospital and he says, look, they're treating his father, a Palestinian. What we see from here, <laughs> what we see over here is that there's a certain ditch complex that exists within the nations around us, that they're missing something. And when they see that the Jewish people have that ability, they can become upset. But if we show them that they can also fill it, if we show them they can also lead a meaningful life, this is what our job is about. And this is the second big idea that underlying in the whole ditch complex that we talk about in anti-Semitism. So that if you think about it, everything that God exists in this world, every bad thing, is a corruption of something positive. That means they've taken something good, destroyed it, distorted it, and therefore you have the evil that comes out of it. And that's why a lot of anti-Semitic things are based on religious, are based on such type of things which were just perverted and corrupted and changed. Our job is that evil doesn't exist on its own. It's a corruption of something good. And therefore, when we see a Haman, a modern-day Haman, when we see an anti-Semite, at first, feel bad the guy has some type of meaningless life that therefore all he can be obsessed with is hating people. And maybe if we find some way to bring meaning into his life, we can change that evil into good. As Yeshai, as the prophet Isaiah tells us that the time will come, as you see in text number 17, the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie with the young goat. These words are a metaphor and a parable. The interpretation of this prophecy is that Jews will dwell in peace together with the wicked Gentiles who, like a wolf leopard, had sought always to devour them. Unfortunately, we're not there at that time yet, that Isaiah tells us. And until then, we still got to work hard in trying to figure it out and make giving those people and helping them and to fill that void. I remember like about 15 years ago, there was a story in Hungary, maybe even just even sooner than that, about 10 years ago, there was a fellow in Hungary, one of the anti-Semitic parties, like it was a minority party in Hungary. The leader was seeming like 
a rabid anti-Semite. And then somebody did a little research on him and found out that he was actually, his ancestry was Jewish. And today, long story short, that person left his anti-Semitic party and today he's a practicing Jew. He had no meaning in his life. And he didn't even know he was Jewish. And therefore, what was it? He was an anti-Semite. And once he was able to see meaning in his life, he had the ability to be able to not only inspire himself, but inspire others around him. This is what we need to do to be able to inspire people around us and get them to realize that they can also lead a meaningful life and there's no reason to hate to be able to get there. There's a well-known story, and we're getting soon to the time of Yutes Kislev, next Tuesday actually, is considered a Rosh Hashan of Hasidus. So we'll have extra refreshments, and we'll bring together with some Lachayim by the uh, next, week, next, uh, next week's class. It's the, and, um, and the Alta celebrates the time of the liberation of the first Chabad Rebbe out of prison. And while the first Chabad Rebbe was in prison for 53 days, he was visited by many different people. Because of knowing his great stature, once they figured out who they actually arrested and realized the false charges, but once the Minister of Education came to visit the Alter Rebbe in prison, and when the Minister of Education came to visit the Alter Rebbe in prison, he asked him a question. He, he was a very fluent in the Torah. And he asked him in the book of Genesis, when God approaches Adam and Eve after they ate from the sin of the tree of knowledge, God says, Ayeka, where are you? Did God not know where they were? There was only two people in the world. It wasn't like that. He had to look that hard. <laughs> What are you saying? Ayeka, where are you? So the first Chabad Rebbe tries to explain to him what it says in commentators that he says, I know the commentaries. I want to hear what the Rebbe has to say. And the Rebbe looked at him and said as follows. God comes to a person. And at that point he said the age of the minister. And he says, you're X amount of years old. Ayeka, where are you? What have you accomplished in your life? What have you done? What have you done to be able to create and make your life more meaningful? When the minister heard this interpretation, he said, Bravo! This is what I was looking for. And he afterwards asked the al what he can do to help him. And the first thing the al said is to send a message to Chassidim to let him know that he's alive and to help him uh, get proper kosher food in the prison. And he was very helpful in securing the al release. When we bring meaning into people's lives, Jews or Gentiles alike, we have the ability to not only change our life, change their life, their perspective, and the lives of people around them. Here's a quick summary of what we learned today. Come on. Oh, there we go. Lesson two. No apologies. One. The absurd and contradictory claims of anti-Semites have persisted for millennia. Attempting to refute these conspiracy theories may keep some people away from anti-Semitism, but it has proven to be a futile endeavor against hardcore haters. Two, the term anti-Semitism sounds more like a theory and fails to convey that this phenomenon is actually evil wickedness. Three, much has been said about the root cause of anti-Semitism. One approach sees it resulting from an inner void due to the lack of a true sense of purpose in life. The Jew represents a commitment to living for a higher purpose and dedication to the mission given to humanity by the world's creator. Anti-Semites wish to obliterate their inner emptiness that they are reminded of when encountering the Jew. Four, 
Hatred exists in the mind of the hater, not the hated. We must avoid internalizing anti-Semitism and imagining that changing elements of our Jewish heritage will solve anti-Semitism. 5. Jews and other minorities cannot be expected to be bifurcated people, severing themselves from their identities in the public sphere. For a minority to have rights in a given place means that it can have a public presence. Being open about our Jewish identity benefits Jews and other minorities. 6. For some potential haters, the best antidote against stumbling into anti-Semitic views is knowing Jews who are upright and of noble character, and noticing that this goodness is linked to their Jewish identity, upbringing, and way of life. To have this influence, we must be open about our Jewish identity. 7. A Jewish explanation for anti-Semitism must allow for the possibility of change, because the Jewish prophets insisted in God's name that anti-Semitism will eventually cease altogether. 8. We can reduce anti-Semitism by teaching the world to avoid an inner void by embracing God's mission for all humanity. Next week, we talk about one of the most common types of anti-Semitism today is anti-Israel, anti-Israel uh, anti movements, BDS, and all that type of stuff, why all of a sudden Israel education is becoming, uh, and why, how we have to have a better relationship with the Promised Land, Israel education, and the very nature of Jewish nature. And, Next week, same time, same place. So, and we look forward. Yes? So, if you're a religious Christian and you believe you're living a full life, um, you found nirvana, 